Welcome back to another episode of the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast with your host, me, Ash Balls. This is a podcast where every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I read a short story or poetry written by an author from long ago or a modern-day author. The author that is read from here is then showcased for the week on the Facebook page by the same name, so you're going to want to follow it. If you're an author and would like your short stories or poetry showcased on the podcast, as well as Facebook page for the week, you can get a hold of us in the link in the bio. And that's where you can also find the link to the Facebook page as well. But thank you to everyone who listens from iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and anywhere else you might be listening from. I truly do appreciate it. So let's get started, shall we? This week's author is O. Henry, and he will be concluding the first season of the Nighttime Short Stories podcast, where there will be a one-month break during the time of which I will be recording more uh, episodes for you guys. But I picked him. The first one I ever read of him as a short story was called The Nose, which he's really known for. I'm not going to read that one for you guys today, but I do recommend you read it. It's funny. Um, But I picked him, and I really found him interesting when I read his bio. He was a musician. He ran away from the police for a while and was evading the police. Um, And he even had his own publication for a while. So definitely make sure that you guys are checking out the Facebook page by the same name, link in the bio. So you guys can get all the interesting facts on the authors that are for the week. And with that, let's get started, shall we? The Duplicity of Hargraves by O'Henry When Major Pendleton Talbot of Mobile, sir, and his daughter, Miss Lydia Talbot, came to Washington to reside, they selected for a boarding place a house that stood 50 yards back from one of the quietest avenues. It was an old-fashioned brick building with a portico upheld by tall white pillars. The yard was shaded by stately locusts and elms, and a catalpa tree in season rained its pink and white blossoms upon the grass. Rows of high box bushes lined the fence and walks. It was the southern style, an aspect of the place that pleased the eyes of the Talbots. In this pleasant private boarding house, they engaged rooms, including a study for Major Talbot, who was adding the finishing chapters to his book, Anecdotes and Reminiscence of Alabama Army Beach and Bar. Major Talbot was of the Old South. The present day had little interest or excellence in his eyes. His mind lived in that period before the Civil War when the Talbots owned thousands of acres of fine cotton land and the slaves to till them when the family mansion was a scene of princely hospitality and drew its guests from the aristocracy of the South. Out of that period, he had brought all of his old pride and scruples of honor and antiquated and punctuous politeness and, you would think, its wardrobe. Such clothes were surely never made within 50 years. The major was tall, but whenever he made that wonderful, archaic genuflection, he called a bow. 
The corners of his frock coat swept the floor. The garment was a surprise even to Washington, which has long ago ceased to shy at the frocks and broad-brimmed hats of Southern congressmen. One of the boarders christened it a Father Hubbard, and it certainly was high in the waist and full in the skirt. But the major, with all of his queer clothes, his immense area of plated, raveling shirt bosom, and the little black string tie with the bow always slipping to one side, both was smiled at and liked in Mrs. Vardaman's select boarding house. Some of the young department clerks would often string him, as they call it, getting him started upon the subject of dearest to him, the traditions and history of his beloved Southland. During his talks, he would quote freely from the anecdotes and reminiscence, but they were very careful not to let him see their designs, for in spite of his 68 years, he could make the boldest of them uncomfortable under the steady regard of his piercing gray eyes. Miss Lydia was a plump little old maid of 35 with smoothly drawn, tightly twisted hair that made her look older. Old-fashioned, too, she was, but antebellum glory did not radiate from her as it did from the major. She possessed a thrifty common sense, and it was she who handled the finances of the family and met all corners where there were bills to pay. The major regarded board bills and and wash bills in contemptible nuances. They kept coming in so persistently and so often. Why, the major wanted to know, could they not be filled and filed and paid in a lump sum at some convenient period, say when the anecdotes and reminiscences had been published and paid for. Miss Lydia would calmly go on with her sewing and say, we'll pay as we go as long as the money lasts, and then perhaps they'll have to lump it. Most of Mrs. Vardaman's boarders were away during the day, being nearly all department clerks and businessmen, but there was one of them who was about the house a great deal from morning to night. This was a young man named Henry Hopkins Hargraves, and every one in the house addressed him by his full name, who was engaged at one of the popular addressed vaudeville theaters. Vaudeville had risen in such a respectable plane in the last few years, and Mr. Hargraves was such a modest and well-mannered person that Mrs. Vardaman could find no objection to enrolling him upon her list of boarders. At the theater, Hargraves was known as an all-round dialect comedian, and having a large repertoire of art, German, Irish, Swede, and blackface specialties. Mr. Hargraves was ambitious and often spoke of his great desire to succeed in legitimate comedy. This young man appeared to conceive a strong fancy for Major Talbot. Whenever that young gentleman would begin his southern reminiscences or repeat some of the liveliest of the anecdotes, Hargraves could always be the found the most attentive among his listeners. For a time, the major showed an inclination to discourage the advances of the play actor, as he privately termed him, but soon the young man's agreeable manner and deputable appreciation of the old gentleman's stories completely won him over. It was not long before the two were like old chums. The major sat apart each afternoon to read to him the manuscript of his book. During the anecdotes, Hargraves never failed to laugh at exactly the right point. The major was moved to declare to Miss Lydia one day, the young Hargroves possessed remarkable perception and a gratifying respect for the old regime. And when it came to talking of those old days, if Major Talbert liked to talk, Mr. Hargraves was entranced to listen. 
Like almost all old people who talk of the past, the Major loved to linger over details. When describing the pleasant, almost royal days of the old planters, he would hesitate until he had recalled the name of the man who had held his horse or the exact date of certain minor happenings or the number of bales of cotton raised in such a year. But Hargraves never grew impatient or lost interest. On the contrary, he would advance questions on a variety of subjects connected with the life of that time, and he never failed to extract ready replies. The fox hunts, the possum suppers, the hoedowns and jubilees in the slaves' quarters and the banquets in the plantation house hall when invitations went for 50 miles around, the occasional feuds with neighboring gentry, the major's duel with Rathborn, Culperson, and Kitty Chalmers, who afterward married a suite of South Carolina and private yacht races for fabulous sums on Mobile Bay, the quaint beliefs and provident habits of loyal virtues of the older workers, and all these were subjects that helped both the major and our graves absorbed for hours at a time. Sometimes at night when the young man could be seen coming upstairs from his room after his turn at the theater was over, the major would appear at the door of his study and beckon archly to him. Going in, Hargroves would find a little table set with a decanter, sugar bowl, fruit, and a big bunch of fresh green mint. It occurred to me, the major would begin, he was always ceremonious, that perhaps you might have found your duties at at your place of occupation sufficiently arduous to enable you, Mr. Hargroves, to appreciate the poet might well have had in his mind when he wrote, Tired Nature's Sweet Restorer, one of our southern juleps. It was a fascination to Hargraves to watch him make it. He took rank among artists when he began, and he never varied the process. With what delicacy he bruised the mint, and with what exquisite nicety he esteemed the ingredients, with what solicited care he capped and compound with the scarlet fruit going against the dark green fringe. And the hospitality and grace with which he offered it after the selected oat straws had been plunged into its tinkling depths. After four months or so in Washington, Miss Lydia discovered one morning that they were almost without money. The anecdotes and reminiscences was completed, but publishers had not jumped at the collected gems of Alabama sense and wit. The rental of a small house, which they still owned in Mobile, was two months in arrears. Their board money for the month would be due in three days. Miss Lydia called her father for a consultation. No money, he said with a surprised look. It is quite annoying to be called on so frequently for these petty sums. Really, I... The major searched in his pocket. He found only a $2 bill, which he returned to his vest pocket. I must attend to this at once, Lydia, he said. Kindly get me my umbrella, and I will go downtown immediately. The congressman from our district, General Felgum, assured me some days ago that he would use his influence to get my book published at an early date. I will go to his hotel at once and see what arrangement has been made. With a sad smile, Miss Lydia watched him button his father Hubbard and departed, pausing at the door, as he always did, to bow profoundly. That evening at dark, he returned. It seemed that Congressman Fulgham had seen the publisher who had the major's manuscript for reading. The person had said, if the anecdotes, etc., were carefully pruned down about one half inch in order to eliminate the sectional and class prejudice with which the book was dyed from end to end, you might consider the publication. The major was a white heat of anger, but regained his equanimity according to his code of manners as soon as he was in Miss Lydia's presence. 
We must have money, said Miss Lydia with a little wrinkle above her nose. Give me two dollars and I'll telegraph Uncle Ralph for some tonight. The major drew a small envelope from his upper vest pocket and tossed it on the table. Perhaps it was in Jesus, he said mildly. The sum was so merely nominal that I bought tickets to the theater tonight. It is a new war drama, Lydia. I thought you would be pleased to witness its first production in Washington. I am told that the says is very fair treatment in the play, and I would confess I would like to see the performance myself. Miss Lydia threw up her hands in silent despair. Still, as the tickets were bought, they may as well be used. So that evening, they sat in the theater listening to the lively overture. Miss Lydia was minded to relegate their troubles for the hour to second place. A major in spotless linen and his extraordinary coat showing only where it was closely buttoned and his white hair smoothly roached looked really fine and distinguished. The curtain went up on the first act, a magnolia flower revealing a typical southern plantation scene. Major Talbot betrayed some interest. Oh, see, explained Miss Lydia, nudging his arm and pointing to her program. The major put his glasses and read the line in the cast of characters with her fingers indicated. Colonel Webster Calhoun, Mr. Hopkins Hargraves. It's our Mr. Hargraves, said Miss Lydia. It must be his first appearance in what he calls legitimate. I am so glad for him. Not until the second act did Colonel Webster Calhoun appear on the stage, and when he made his entry, Mr. Talbot gave an audible sniff, glared at him, and seemed to freeze solid. Miss Lydia uttered a little ambiguous squeak and crumpled her program in her hand, for Colonel Calhoun was made up as nearly resembling Major Talbot as one pea does another. The long, thin, white, curly hair at the ends, the aristocratic beak of a nose, the crumbled, wide, raveling shirt front, and the string tie with the bow nearly under one ear were almost exactly duplicated. And then, to clinch the imitation, he wore the twin to the Major's supposed and unparalleled coat, high-collared, baggy empire waist, ample skirted, hanging a foot lower from behind, and the garment could have been designed from no other pattern. From then on, the Major and Miss Lydia sat bewitched and saw the counterfeit presentiment of a haughty Talbot dragged, as the Major afterward expressed it, through the slanderous mire of a corrupt stage. Mr. Hargraves had used his opportunities well as he had caught the Major's little idiosyncrasies of speech, accent, and intonation, and his pompous court lines to perfection, exaggerating all to the purpose of the stage. When he performed that marvelous bow that the Major fondly imagined to be of the pink of all salutations, the audience set forth a round of hearty applause. Miss Lydia sat immovable, not daring to glance toward her father. Sometimes her hand next to him would be laid against her cheek, as if to conceal the smile which, in spite of her disapproval, she could not entirely suppress. The culmination of Hargrave's audacious imitation took place in the third act. The scene is where Colonel Calhoun entertains a few of the neighboring planters in his den. Standing at a table in the center of the stage with his friends grouped around him, he delivers that inimitable rambling character monologue so famous in a magnolia flower. At the same time, he deftly makes juleps for the party. Major Talbot, sitting quietly but white with indignation, heard his best stories retold, and his pet theories and hobbies advanced and expanded, and the dream of the anecdotes and reminiscences served, exaggerating and garbled. His favorite narrative, that of the duel of Rathbone Culbertson, was not omitted, and it was delivered with more fire, egotism, and gusto than the Major himself put into it. The monologue concluded with a quaint, delicious, witty little lecture about the art of concocting a julep, 
illustrated by the act. Here, Major Talbot's delicate but showy science was reproduced to a hair's breadth from his dainty handling of a fragrant weed, the one thousandth part of a grain, too much pressure, gentlemen, and you extract bitterness instead of the aroma of this heaven-bestowed plant to his solicitous selection of the oaten straws. At the close of the scene, the audience raised a tumultuous roar of appreciation. The portrayal of the type was so exact, so sure, thorough, and the leading characters in the play were forgotten. After repeated calls, Hargraves came before the curtain and bowed, and his rather boyish face, bright and flushed with knowledge of success. At last, Miss Lydia turned and looked at the Major. His thin nostrils were working like the gills of a fish. He laid both shaking hands upon the arms of his chair to rise. We will go, Lydia, he said chokingly. This is an abominable discretion. Before he could rise, she pulled him back into his seat. We will stay at it, she declared. Do you want to advertise the copy by exhibiting the original coat? So they remained to the end. Her grave success must have kept him up late that night, for neither at breakfast nor at dinner did he appear. About three in the afternoon, he tapped at the door of Major Talbot's study. The Major opened it, and Hargraves walked in with his hands full of the morning paper, too full of his triumph to notice anything unusual in the Major's demeanor. I put it all over him last night, Major. He began exultingly. I had my inning, and I think scored. Here's what the post says. His conception and portrayal of the old-time Southern colonel with his absurd grandiloquentness and his eccentric garb and his quaint idioms and phrases, his moth-eaten pride of family, and his really kind heart, prestigious sense of honor, lovable simplicity is the best delineation of a character role of the boards today. The coat worn by Colonel Calhoun is itself nothing less than an evolution of genius. Mr. Hargraves has captured his public. How does that sound, Major, for a first-nighter? I had the honor, the Major's voice sounded ominously frigid, of witnessing your very remarkable performance, sir, last night. Hargroves looked disconcerted. You were there? I didn't know you ever... I didn't know you ever cared for the theater. Oh, I say, Mr. Talbot, he explained frankly. Don't you be offended. I admit, I did get a lot of pointers from you that helped out wonderfully in the part. But it's a type, you know, not individual. The way the audience caught on shows that. Half of the patrons of the theater are Southerners. They recognized it. Mr. Hargraves, said the Major, who remained standing, you have put upon me an unpardonable insult. You have burlesqued my person, grossly betrayed my confidence, and misused my hospitality. If I thought you possessed the faintest conception of what is a signed manual of a gentleman or what is due one, I would call you out, sir. Old as I am, I will ask you to leave this room, sir. The actor appeared to be slightly bewildered and seemed hardly to take in the full meaning of the old gentleman's words. I'm truly sorry you took offense, he said regretfully. Up here, we don't look at things just as you people do. I know men who would buy out half the house to have the personality put on the stage so the public would recognize it. They're not from Alabama, sir, said the Major haughtingly. Perhaps not. I have a pretty good memory, Major. Let me quote a few lines from your book. In response to a toast at a banquet given in Milledgeville, I believe you uttered, and intended to have printed these words. The northern man is utterly without sentiment of warmth except in far as feeling may be in turn to his own commercial profit. He will suffer without resentment any imputation cast upon the honor of himself or his loved ones that does not bear with it the consequence of pecuniary loss. In his charity, he gives with a libel hand that it must be heralded the trumpet of the chronicled in brass. Do you think that the picture is fairer than the one you saw of Colonel Calhoun last night? 
The descriptions of the major frowning is not without grounds. Some exact latitude must be allowed for public speaking. And in public acting, replied Hargraves, that is not the point, persisted Major relentlessly. It was personal character. I positively declined to overlook it, sir. Mr. Talbot, said Mr. Hargraves with a winning smile, I wish you would understand me. I want you to know that I never dreamed of insulting you. In my profession, all life belongs to me. I take what I want and what I can, and I return it over the footlights. Now, if you will, let's let it go at that. I came in to see you about something else, and I've been pretty good friends with some months. And I'm going to take the risk of offending you again, and I know you're hard up for money. Never mind how I found out. A boarding house is no place to keep such matters secret. And I want you to let me help you out of the pinch. I've been there often enough myself. I've been getting a fair salary all the season, and I've saved some money. You're welcome to a couple hundred, or even more, until you get... Stop, commanded the major with his arms outstretched. It seems my book didn't lie after all. You think your money salve will heal all the hurts of honor. Under no circumstances would I accept a loan from a casual acquaintance. And as to you, sir, I would starve before I would consider your insulting offer of a financial adjustment of the circumstances we have discussed. I beg to repeat my request relative to your quitting the apartment. Hargraves took his departure without another word. He also left the house the same day moving, as Mr. Vardaman explained, at the supper table near the vicinity of the downtown theater where a magnolia flower was booked for in a week's run. You are listening to the Nighttime Short Stories podcast, where we read a new short story from long ago to modern day authors every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So be sure to check out the Facebook page under the same name, there's a link in the bio, for daily information, photos, quotes, and interesting facts and bios on authors showcased for the week. If you know of anyone that you think would enjoy the podcast as well, please be sure to share it out. And again, thank you for listening. Critical was the situation of Major Talbot and Miss Lydia. There was no one in Washington to whom the Major's scruples allowed him to apply for a loan. Miss Lydia wrote a letter to Uncle Ralph, but it was doubtful whether the relative's constricted affairs would permit him to furnish help. The Major was forced to make an apologetic address to Mrs. Vardaman regarding the delayed payment for board, referring to delinquent rentals and delayed remittances in a rather confused strain. Deliverance came from an entirely unexpected source. Late one afternoon, the doormaid came up and announced an old colored man who wanted to see Major Talbot. The Major asked that he be sent up to a study. Soon, an old dorky appeared in the doorway and his hat in the hand bowing. The man was then scraping with a clumsy foot. He's quite decently dressed in a baggy suit of black. His big coarse shoes shone with a metallic luster, suggestive of a stove polish. His bushy wool was gray and almost white. After middle life, it was difficult to estimate the age of the man. This one might have seen as many years as had Mr. Major Talbot. I'd be bound you don't know me, Mars Pendleton, were his first words. The Major rose and came forward at the old familiar style of dress. It was one of the old plantation men without a doubt, but they had been widely scattered and he could not recall the voice or face. I don't believe I do, he said kindly, unless you will assist my memory. Don't you remember Cindy's Mose, Mars Pendleton, what migrated immediately after we died? 
Wait a minute, said the major, rubbing his forehead with the tips of his fingers. He loved to recall everything connected with those beloved days. Cindy's Mose, he reflected, you worked among the horses, breaking the colts. Yes, I remember now. After the surrender, he took the name of, oh, don't prompt me, Mitchell, and went to the west, to Nebraska. Yes, sir, yes, sir, said the old man, stretched with a delighted grin. That's him, that's it, Nebraska, that's me, Mose Mitchell, old Uncle Mose Mitchell, he calls me now. Old Marjapa, give me them mule colts when I left to go starting on my own. And you remember them colts, Mars Pendleton. I don't seem to recall the colts, said Major. You know, I was married the first year of the war and living at old Follinsby Place. But sit down, sit down, Uncle Mose. I'm glad to see you. I hope you have prospered. Uncle Mose took a chair and laid his hat carefully on the floor beside it. Yes, sir, of late I'd done Mount Famous. When I first got to Nebraska, the folks came all round to see me and my colts. They didn't see no mules like them in Nebraska, so I sold the mules for $300. Yes, sir, 300 and Then I opened a blacksmith shop. And, sir, I made some money and brought some land. Me and my old woman done raised up some children, and they all doing well except two of them who had died. For a year in a railroad come along and sat slammed down against my lawn. And, sir, Miss Pendleton, Uncle Mose, am worth them thousands of dollars in money, property, and land. I'm glad to hear it, said the Major heartily. Glad to hear it. And that little babies of yours, Miss Pendleton, one what you name Miss Liddy, I be bound that little one growed up till nobody would know her. The Major stepped to the door and called, Liddy, dear, would you come? Miss Lydia, looking quite grown and a little worried, came in from her room. Are now what I tell you, I know that baby done plum grown up. You won't remember Mo's child. This is Aunt Cindy's Mo's Lydia, Lydia, explained the major. He left somewhere for the West when you were two years old. Well, said Miss Lydia, I can hardly be expected to remember you, Uncle Mose, at that age. And as you say, I'm plum grown up. And I was blessed a long time ago, but I'm glad to see you, even if I can't remember you. And she was, and so was the major. Something live and tangible could come to link them with their happy past. The three sat and talked over old times, and Major and Uncle Moses correcting the prompting of each other as they reviewed the scenes of the days. The major inquired the old man was doing so far from his home. Uncle Mose, I'm a delicate, he explained, to the Grand Baptist Convention in the city. I never preached none, but be a residing elder in the church and able for her to pay my own expenses, they sent me along. And how did you know we were in Washington, inquired Miss Lydia. There's a colored man that works in the hotel where I stopped, so it comes from Mobile. He told me to see Miss Pendleton coming out over the dish there in one morning. What I come for, continued Uncle Mose, reaching his pocket, besides the sight of from folks from home, was to pay Mrs. Pendleton's what I owe him. Yes, sir, $300, he handed the major a roll of bills, and I left Old Mars and said, take the moles, coats, moles, and if it be so, for you to be able to pay him. Yes, sir, that was his words. The word then left Old Mars himself, and Old Mars been long ago dead. Debt descends to Mrs. Pendleton, $300. Uncle Mose is plenty able to pay now when the railroad, but my land and I paid off for the mules. Count the money, Miss Pendleton, that's what I sold the mules for. Tears welled up in Mr. Major's tablet's eyes. He took Uncle Moses' hand and laid his other upon his shoulder. Dear faithful old friend, he said in a steady voice, I don't mind saying to you that Mrs. Pendleton spent his last do dollar in the world a week ago. 
We will accept this money, Uncle Mose, since in a way it is sort of a payment as well as a token of loyalty and devotion to our old past. Lydia, my dear, take the money. You are better fitted than I to manage its expenditure. Take it, honey, said Uncle Mose. It belongs to you. It's Talbot's money. After Uncle Mose had gone, Miss Lydia had a good cry for joy, and Major turned his face to the corner and smoked his clay pipe volcanically. The succeeding days saw the Talbots restored to peace and ease. Miss Lydia's face lost its worried look, and the Major appeared in a new frock coat in which he looked like a wax figure personifying the memory of his golden age. Another publisher who read the manuscript of the anecdotes and reminiscences thought that with a little retouching and toning down of the highlights, he could make a really bright and sellable volume of it. Altogether, the situation was comfortable and not without the touch of hope that is often sweeter than arrived in blessings. One day, about a week after their piece of good luck, a maid brought a letter to Miss Lydia to her room. The postmark showed that it was from New York. Not knowing anyone from there, Miss Lydia, in a mild flutter of wonder, sat down at her table, opened the letter with her scissors, and this is what she read. Dear Mrs. Talbot, I thought you might be glad to learn of my fortune. I have received and accepted an offer of $200 per week by a New York stock company to play Colonel Calhoun in a magnolia flower. There is something else I wanted you to know. I guess you better not tell Mr. Major Talbot. I was anxious to make him some amends for the great help he was in studying the part and for the bad humor he was in about it. He refused to let me, so I did it anyhow. I could easily spare the 300 Sincerely yours, H. Hopkins Hargraves. P.S. How did I play Uncle Mose? Major Talbot passing through the hall saw Miss Lydia's eyes door. Miss Lydia's door opened and stopped. Any mail for us this morning, Lydia, dear? He asked. Miss Lydia slid the letter beneath the fold of her dress. The mobile chronicle came, she said promptly. It's on the table in your study. The end. You have been listening to the Nighttime Short Stories Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and come back every Friday night at 9.55 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new author of the week. Thank you for listening. Until next time.